You're listening to the Art of Parenting podcast. I'm your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. My intention is to share simple tips and tricks that will make a huge difference in your life and home, as well as give you all the support and encouragement you deserve to enhance your parenting experience. I've created a safe place for us to explore the issues and concerns that matter to you, bringing you clarity and solution with Q&A sessions and inspirational conversation with world-renowned experts in a variety of fields. I'm a firm believer that parenting was never meant to be done alone, and I'm here to debunk the general consensus that it has to be hard. A warm welcome to you, and thanks for tuning in. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Art of Parenting. This is your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel, and today I have Deb Flaschenberg with me to talk about, well, I don't know what we're going to talk about, but I think it's going to be all birth and prenatal and all that yummy stuff that I that I adore, and so I am very excited to embark on this conversation with Deb, and Deb, thank you for making the time uh, to be here with us today. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to jump into this conversation. I know that you are a doula and I'm passionate about birth as well. So I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. Yes, yes. And so before we get going, I'd love for you to define what the art of parenting is to you. Oh, that is beautiful. The art of parenting is something I have not mastered. Um <laughs> Do we ever? (laughs) Do we ever? I have two kids, uh, eight and 11, and I'm always trying to find the art of parenting. I guess if I really was to think about that, what would be the art of parenting? It would be to show up in a way for our children and ourselves that feels balanced and collaborative, but also guiding and it's why I think it could be an art form is because it's always evolving and it can be messy. I, I was an art major <laughs> when I was at Bard. So that's my, that's my take so on it. Know. It was a little, messy, <laughs> a little messy. So yeah, I think it's, it's this evolution and growth between within the family unit and something I've had to talk to my own kids about at this age of eight and 11 is where I, while I'm there for you, I'm not, your friend necessarily. I I hope they can trust me and talk to me, but I'm really there for support, guidance, and role modeling, which is different than friends. So that's kind of a convoluted definition, I guess. But a beautiful one. I, I love the way that you, you know, integrated the whole balance, collaboration, and and guidance, because I, I always say we, we're, we're just guides. That, that's really what we are as parents. So I love that. Beautiful. And, and so, Deb, before we get too involved in our conversation, I'd love for you to share with our listeners a little bit about your background and how you came to do the work that you're doing today. Oh, I came at it in such an odd way. So I ended up, so I did, I went to two colleges, one Bard College and then the Boston Conservatory. And from, while I was at the Boston Conservatory, I was a musical theater major and that was my degree. And that's what I did for many years, singing and dancing. And then while I was on tour with the show Carousel, uh, one of my friends was telling me about her friend Donna. And she's like, you have to meet Donna. She's also into yoga and and singing and dancing. I'm like, okay. So I ended up falling into yoga. 
And the style that I started with Bikram yoga really didn't suit me. While I liked it for preparing for dancing because it was very heated and stretchy, the the founder of it and the ideology of it really didn't sit with me. So I decided to go in a totally different direction. And my mom, who does marketing, she's like, have you thought of prenatal yoga? And I'm like, oh, I hadn't. I was in my mid-20s. None of my friends were having babies because we were in New York trying to be performers. And I decided to jump into that. Again, none of my friends having babies. So it was kind of a world I was now introduced to. But then I, from that, decided to hang my shingle and become open a studio called the Prenatal Yoga Center. We're in New York City. And again, still hadn't been involved with birth. I understood some of the anatomical changes early on and how to modify. But then one of my students was doing her fellowship at one of the New York hospitals. And she said, do you want to see some births? And I said, yes, I do. And so (laughs) I realized now it's probably illegal what we did, but she told everyone I was a med student and she dressed me in scrubs. And I saw, I saw several births. I saw kind of a unicorn twin vaginal breach, like the second, the baby A, baby B was breach. Baby A obviously was head down. I scrubbed in for a cesarean. I didn't make it very far. Um, But I had one experience that it was a very high intensity moment in the birthing room. And the attendant was there and everyone's like, oh, okay, let's, you know, got to have this baby. And when the baby was born, everyone kind of cheered on the doctor and the parents who didn't speak English were kind of shell-shocked, and then everyone left and left me oddly in the room. And the baby wasn't on the parent's chest. It was in the little heater. And I was standing there, and I was like silently welcoming this baby. But I left that day thinking, wow, what I was doing in prenatal yoga was just modifications. And it wasn't giving my students any preparation for what birth could be like. And so that's why I became a doula, so that I could support clients. But then I could take what I learned while watching births and integrate it into my yoga. And then I added on, I became a childbirth educator, and then I eventually had my own two children, and I became a pelvic floor yoga teacher and a prenatal, postnatal exercise corrective specialist. So I just, I keep learning for the sake, oh, and spinning babies. Um, I became an educator in that for the sake of my students that can I help them find their path, almost like a parent, like guiding them. Can I offer them the information for them to make the decisions that's best for them? And many times, as you know, as a doula, it's hard to find, or or maybe that someone doesn't even know what to look, or maybe someone doesn't even know that they have options to discuss with their care provider. So that was, again, yet a long-winded answer to, to who I am and what I do. But what a beautiful journey of, you know, for me, what I heard is like you being able to observe these births, which is, you know, a perfectly normal occurrence of life mm-hmm. that you, you know, your, 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 <laughs> your neurons lit up and you went like, this is, this is where I belong. And this is yeah. what I need. And I love in your bio, how you describe yourself as a birth and anatomy geek, because I, I can totally understand that, you know, we, I know some some doulas call themselves, you know, 
what is it, birth junkies. Yeah. And and it's true. Like there there's something about the the energy of birth and the 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 sacredness of birth that is just um just beautiful and that you 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 want to be a part of it but like you say you want to to guide and and I know for me I've discovered like how little women know how little they know how freaking powerful they are <laughs> yeah and even you know? their options a lot of them when yes, we talk about yes. How, what are your thoughts on what your birth will be like? They're like, well, what choices do I have? And I'm like, oh, wow, there are so many choices. And I've seen too many people come back traumatized from their birth. And so that's another thing that I really work to help them find their voice so they can self-advocate. And then we work on that in class, preparing our bodies and our minds for this endeavor ahead. Mm, beautiful, beautiful, and, and such beautiful work to be doing. I, I know for me, I mean, I kind of discovered all of this a little bit later in life, but I've always said, I think if I had, if I were to go back, I'd probably be a midwife. Because <laughs> I just think that that, you know, being there to assist uh, birthing parents, I, I just find that so beautiful. I thought of midwifery for like a hot second. Um, but. Yeah. <laughs> When I accidentally yeah. ended up helping with delivery that I should <laughs> it just happened super quickly. I'm like, oh, should I be a midwife? And then in that moment, I'm like, that is a lot of responsibility. It is. It <laughs> and is. I thought, no. Yeah, the doula, the doula, and it's funny because I have friends that say, Doula, aren't you like, aren't you afraid? Isn't that a lot of responsibility? I say, no, it's not at all. I mean, I'm not the midwife. <laughs> I'm not the, you know, I'm not the medical person. I'm, I'm there to, to be of support. Uh, and that's it. So, yeah. So Deb, you mentioned, as you were describing your work, something about spinning babies. And I'd love if you could just explain. Um, I'm, I'm a little intrigued. I know that we, I was supposed to do a spinning baby kind of class in my doula training. And then, you know, the whole world shut down, that never happened. <laughs> so I never, I never got that course. And I've been hearing about it. I have an inkling of what it is, but I'd love for you to kind of share with our listeners what that's all about. Oh, absolutely. So Gail Tully is the founder of Spinning Babies. And it's a methodology to help prepare the body for better balance prenatally and during birth. And it's something that's really near and dear to my heart. My first birth was really dysfunctional because of misalignments and tensions in the body. And so a lot of my work already started to reflect this idea of body balance. So there's three principal movements. There's an inversion that I recommend people take a look at spinningbabies.com so they can see it. But it's a it's an inversion that you do for three breaths. It's very specific how you get in and out of it. And the idea is that we can balance the uterine ligaments. So if there is tension in the ligaments that attach from the bony pelvis to the uterus and to the cervix, that can misalign the cervix. And what happens during labor is the baby's head pushes the cer- pushes on the cervix during a contraction and the uterus retracts. So if you kind of picture putting on a turtleneck sweater, that's basically what's happening with the baby's head and the cervix. And if there's misalignment there or 
some torsion in the ligaments, there may not be an even pressure from the baby's head on the cervix. So there's an inversion. There's also something called the sideline release that can also help balance the pelvic floor muscles and the ligaments. And then there's something called a jiggle, which is, it feels so good. (laughs) It's softening and releasing the fascia. So all of this is to create less obstruction for how baby descends and rotates through the pelvis. So when we hear about these long, long, long births, it's typically, it's not usually the power of the contraction because with Pitocin, we can increase that power. It's usually baby's position. So baby is, I think 90, I think the number is about 97% of babies are head down at time of birth. But what we're ideally looking for is the baby to have its chin tucked into its chest and the smallest part of baby's head pressing against the cervix to open it. Now, if the baby's starting to come into the pelvis and there's some torsion on a ligament or the pelvic floor is tight or the psoas is tight, the baby's chin may start to move away from its chest. And instead of the smallest part of the baby's head trying to open the cervix, you may have the side of the head or the forehead. And that can either have one side of the cervix getting thicker and one side getting thinner, or it's just not, or baby's just not fitting kind of like a button through a buttonhole. And no matter how much Pitocin is given to the parent, making those contractions more powerful, if baby's position is misaligned and baby's chin is extended away from its chest, it could be a much longer stalled labor. And so spinning babies looks at different ways to open the pelvis, different positions, understanding the inlet, the mid pelvis, the outlet, and the three principles. So it's really trying to help. And I think all doulas should absolutely have knowledge in spinning babies. It's really trying to help navigate the baby through the different parts of the pelvis during birth. And so that instead of being like, oh, baby's just too big. Baby may not be too big, but if the chin's away from the chest, that head measures much bigger than if the chin is in. So it's really to help have a smoother birth and what I would also call less traumatic birth because less interventions if everything is well aligned and well lined up. Right. And it sounds like it's also a practice that uh, midwives should should definitely know about if it's- Midwives, absolutely. What- What I saw when I was doing my spinning babies training is you have to do several workshops to do it. It was exciting to see a lot of labor and delivery nurses learning this because if someone doesn't have a doula, then the L&D nurse, if they're available, they may be able to guide. But that's why I think, I mean, I won't get on my soapbox about this, but it would be so amazing if everyone could have a doula and that the doulas had this knowledge because you can't expect someone in labor to remember, oh, I should get my peanut ball and organize my hips this way. And where's the baby in my pelvis? Right, right. So we've been we've been throwing this word around doula since we started. Yes. And I just I'm just had this thing uh, of my listeners going, what are they talking about? So <laughs> I'd love for you to take a second to explain what that uh, means and what that role is for you. What is the doula? 
Sure. Well, first of all, it is not a medically trained person for the most part. Some doulas may come to this with a medical background, but doulas in general are not medically trained. So they are not making medical decisions. What a doula can do is offer informational support, physical support, and emotional support. So if I have a client that has said to me, I really want to have as little intervention as possible. My job is to reflect that back. So if someone comes in and says, oh, we're just going to start some Pitocin, I'm not going to say, no, that is not what my client wants. I will say, you know, Sally, how do you feel about that? Do you have any questions? So that Sally, my client, can say, I would love some more information about that or sure, go for it. You know, so I'm, again, not ever making the decision for my client, but I can kind of goes back to that whole idea back to parent in a sense, guide or remind or offer a pause for someone to say, I'd love a little time to think about this, or I'd love some more information about this from their care provider. And then the doula can also offer emotional support. As labor progresses, people often hit these crises of confidence and feel like I can't do it. And then the doula is there to support them however they want. A doula should never arrive with their own agenda and should really listen and watch to what the birthing person is saying. So I've had clients that have said, I absolutely want an unmedicated birth. And then there are times that they say, I think I've changed my mind. And I'm there to say, absolutely, let's do what you need. Now, they may say, if I say that, try to dissuade me. And then I'll say, let's talk about this after the next contraction, or let's talk about this in three more contractions. But then we always have a word that means like, okay, I've, I heard that you're going to try to push me off, but I'm saying no. <laughs> and so we have kind of like that safe word. Um, and then the doula can also offer physical support. So showing up with my bag of tricks, I've got a hot water bottle I can put on someone's back or in the front of their belly to soften their, their broad ligament. And I know how to support through the hips and do different massage techniques. Um, And then, of course, never taking the place if they're partnered, but then help guide a partner to how to best support so that we become a team. It's really what I, I really like to think of the whole birth team. And some one vision I always have about working together is that we we circle the wagons around the birthing person. Meaning we're like we're protecting their space. We're letting them get into that birth zone. And we're just we're just there to support and guide and and protect from those that may not protect in a way of like I'm shunning you, but extraneous people that come into the room that don't really need to play a role. We're just holding that space so that the person that the person that's doing the hard work doesn't get distracted or feel um, watched or um, overly observed because we know the hormones need to flow. And if someone's feeling observed or judged, that's not going to help. So that's why I call it the circling the wagons, holding that space. So that is what a doula does. And it's a beautiful role, you know, for for the birthing parents. And as Deb, you know, was describing, it's really about being there for that new family that is emerging, really. You know, I, I know for me, I just attended a birth a couple of weeks ago, and she just sent me a, like a little testimonial and was saying how she wouldn't have been able to hold on to her husband's hand the entire time had I not been there. And it's true, like, that's what she needed, right? She just needed him to hold, hold her hand and, and, and 
I was there to be able to give them that space and to for him not to to worry about having to do anything else than than just be there for her. Yeah, because it's a lot of pressure on the partner to expect it that is, they it is. understand what birth looks like. I always remember getting like that call at the first contraction. Oh my God, the baby's almost here. <laughs> because if you don't know what birth looks like, for some people it can look kind of scary if they're not expecting these big waves of sensation and some primal sounds. So I think it just, again, it can bring, I know for my husband, for my second, I'm like, do we need a doula? He's like, I need the doula. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And so when you work with um, so private doula clients, how how um, soon do you see them like before before the birth? When do you start kind of that relationship uh, doula client? Well, when I'm not taking births right now, but when I was, I had a really special relationship that I chose to only take my yoga students. And that is a privilege because what that offered us was a lot of contact and a lot of time to build a relationship of trust and for them to get to know me, for them, for me to get to know them and have a, a similar language through our practice, our yoga practice together. So I was in a really unique experience that it wasn't just what most doulas would do, like, okay, we'll do a meet and greet, and then I'll be on call for you, and we'll meet two or three times. So once I would establish that someone said, I would love to hire you to be my doula, then I would want, if they were partnered, I would want to meet their partner and them to talk to me a little more about what I would offer. And then I would do usually one or at least two, sometimes two prenatal meetings. Now, again, some doulas would do like three or four, but because I had such contact with them, sometimes two or three times a week, I'd see them in class. But we would definitely have a really big several hour meeting to talk about what did they, how did they foresee their birth? And one thing that I would always bring up in our big meeting was what are some of their fears? That way we can, and they never had to share exactly what it was. Most of the time they did, but then I could be on alert for those things. So maybe it was, I'm fearful my labor is going to stall, or I'm fearful how I'm going to react to this, or I'm scared of transition, or I'm scared of the sensation of pushing, or whatever it is. I actually had one client that during labor, she's like, I'm scared of becoming a mom. And I'm like, oh, okay. So <laughs> we we worked with it then. So what someone's fears and really sit with it so that we can reflect on that and have a plan. And so I would do kind of that really big meeting and then oftentimes like a second meeting. But I know a lot of doulas will do a lot more frequent meetings. But again, when I would see someone in class two or three times a week, we already got to do a check-in. And then I would always be on call for them at 37 weeks. And it was on call 37 weeks until that baby came. And then I'd be with them the whole labor. And then for a couple hours after, and then I would do a follow-up uh, meeting with them, like a like a rehash and discuss and answer any questions. And I usually brought some food um, and just kind of a reconnect. That was what I did as a doula. I'm curious what what you how you organize your doula work. Well, I'm I'm just starting into the the private doula work. I have been for the past two and a half years a volunteer doula, so it's completely 
different relationship where I'm on call for 20, you know, for 12 hours, two day, two days a month, basically. And then there's also kind of this group text that goes, you know, that comes around that if you're available, you can go in. But I don't know the person whose room I'm walking into. And so this is, yeah, it, this is at a university hospital. So it's a teaching hospital. There is both a birth center, so for unmedicated births, and then there's a labor delivery all on the same floor. And so when you get called in, you're just told what room to show up to. You know maybe the age of the mother and if this is a first child or not. And that's about it. Oh, wow. So very, very different than, you know, the whole private um, doula. I just actually had my first private a few weeks ago, and the couple called me very, very late into their pregnancy. And so I just went over to their house. We met for a couple of hours, and I'm so, so glad that I did because I think I planted some seeds as to, <laughs> you know, that she had choices and, and so forth. And it ended up being just this beautiful, unmedicated, uh, you know, easy birth. I mean, easy, you know, quote unquote, for me, for sure. But for her, I think it was, it was, you know, not at all traumatic. It was just um, very smooth sailing, especially for a first, first child. And I really like, I think, for me, and, 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 I, and I also wanted to, to point this out to listeners, is that doula, there can be a uh, labor support doula, so what we call a birth doula, and there's also postpartum doulas, which is really to help the parents after the birth, because, you know, there's recovery time, there's getting to know the baby, there's um, certain nutrients that we should be giving the mom and all this. And I'm starting to lean, I think, towards uh, the postpartum doula, just because I'm, I'm a baby. <laughs> I just love babies. And I just, to me, they're just so such fascinating, you know, little, little humans that I would love to give that support to parents because I have found that parents are kind of so, so focused on the birth that they tend to forget that there's a whole entire life after the birth, <laughs> that it would be good to prepare ourselves, right? Like we talk about the birth plan, but like, what's your parenting plan? What's what you going to do afterwards? So that's kind of what I'm feeling called to for sure. That sounds beautiful. And you're absolutely right. There ne definitely needs to be a postpartum plan that needs to be discussed. I think most people are like, okay, get this baby out and then, but then the end then is much longer. I mean, that's exactly, so exactly. It's the rest you of might, your life. <laughs> yeah. But even just those first several weeks, yes, trying to get yes. a sense of, you know, landing after this ordeal of giving birth and the kind of the support they need. I, my, for my first child, my first birth was 42 hours. It was long. Ooh, wow. And, you know, it was so long. And we, my husband and I were so thankful for a postpartum doula because it, it was my mom's first grandchild. So like, she was super excited and my husband's parents, they, my niece and nephew are much older, so they hadn't had a baby in the family for a while. So they kind of embarked on us. But I needed somebody that kind of played goalie. Like, could, <laughs> like we need some space now. And what they had done 
when I was in my late 30s when I had my first. So my mom's memory of raising a child First of all, it definitely had some holes in it, but then also things were different in the 70s. So it was helpful to have somebody that really understood the needs of the parent, understood updated guidelines for babies that grandparents don't always remember. So I think a postpartum doula is a beautiful position and a beautiful place in the whole birth journey. It wasn't what I was called to, but I think if I were to go back to that work, it's also a little easier on the body of the doula. Being a birth doula is, it can really take a beating, especially now. I don't, again, I don't do it right now because of the age of my kids. I can't just be like, okay, peace out and then come back and then jump back in. Um, <laughs> so that that's not serving me at this time, but I could see for some folks that could better serve a family life that as a postpartum doula, you go to these hours, they're set hours, and you come back. It's really a very special role. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I love the, the the being both, but it's true, like the, the experience that I had with this, this birth I had a few weeks ago that I was mentioning, doing the postpartum visit. So I went, you know, I went to their home for a couple of hours, and you could just see they were ready to receive new information, right? Yes, that beforehand. Yeah. Thirsty for it. Exactly. Before they, you know, they were clueless. It was, it was all about the birth. And so here they, here they had this little human in their arms. They're madly in love and they, they want to know like, oh, what to expect? What, what, what should I do? And all this. And so for me, I was like, okay, this is where I get to really, you know, share, share my love of, of, you know, Montessori and just um, setting up the home and all of that. So, so we'll see where, where that takes me, but um, so, so to go back to, to, to you and your work, um, you started this prenatal yoga center, how many years ago now? 20. 20. So in the past 20 years, like what have you seen, has has maybe evolved in our like in our perception of birth what has evolved even in the, the the medical field like are you seeing kind of we're going in a positive direction or or maybe not but um how, how has that evolved for you Oh, so there's been so many ups and downs. So what is exciting is I'm seeing a lot more people, realizing I think they have choices. I see a lot more people talking about the pelvic floor. I get <laughs> something I'm really passionate about because one thing we know about the pelvic floor, when it's tight, it can really inhibit birth. It can really make things stall out. And then we have a higher C-section rate because babies stalled. So I'm excited that that is more in the limelight. Spinning babies has become a lot more mainstream. Again, that's helping people facilitate a more functional birth. What I did see, again, it's been a two-decade span, I did see a little bit more openness to some different types of births. Again, I'm only able to speak from either data or anecdotally from the New York area, New York City. But what I am seeing now is actually, and this has been the last several years, it could be COVID-related, the induction rate is higher 
than it, than I'm than I've seen in the past. There's a lot more inductions. Um, I think that could be for a myriad of reasons. I think it could have started during COVID. There's also something called the Arrive trial that came out that I think the understanding of it, if people really looked at the data, I think we're not always... So let me give a little bit of background. So the Arrive study came out basically saying you have a lower level, and I don't have the the statistics in front of me, you're going to have less cesareans by inducing it 39 weeks. But the parameters in which the ARRIVE study was done was very, very spacious. There wasn't as much timetable behind it. You need to dilate within a certain time. You need to start pushing baby out within a certain time. So there's a lot more spaciousness. So I think because of that, we are seeing more people being induced and we're also seeing more babies malpositioned. And I think that is making for these longer births. And I think that's a lot about how we're it's saying a lot about our culture. Are we are we just very sedentary now? Are we are we overdoing things? Are we not well balanced in our bodies? So I've definitely seen that. One thing on another part, ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, has revised some of their guidelines. So it might have been feel like with COVID these last three years, it's kind of created this blockage in my mind. So it was anywhere from like five to six years ago, maybe a little more, that ACOG moved the definition of active labor. It used to be early labor was zero through three centimeters, and then active labor started at four. Now ACOG has moved that to active labor starting at six, which is great because there's a lot of work that can the body's doing between four and six. And with the recommendation of saying, if you're going to get an epidural, it's really best to wait until, if possible, you're in active labor so that things are moving and grooving and not slowing down. So ACOG adjusted where active labor sits. And they've also given more space and time when we're talking about management. So now they're saying, and I don't have exactly the data in front of me, I think they're saying for people with an epidural, you should allow four to five hours of pushing. And I think like minimum. And what was happening in a lot of the New York hospitals saying three hours was the window that someone was allowed to push. And after three hours, if they hadn't had their baby, they were to have a cesarean birth. And now ACOG is saying, hold the horses, three hours for for a first-time parent with an epidural, that may not be sufficient. So we are seeing some of these guidelines adjusting. So there's some ups and some changes and some things that we have to say, hmm, what's going on here? Right, right. And I'm surprised that that you say you're you're seeing kind of an uptick in the induction because I, mm-hmm. I to me I'm I'm I guess I'm, you know, the least intervention the better. <laughs> uh, you know, and I always go back to that movie, The Business of Being Born. Yes. That? Oh my gosh, it's part of our teacher training. So I've probably seen it okay. like 50 or 60 times. Yes, I know. And <laughs> so, yeah, so for our listeners, the business of being born, um, if you're not pregnant, definitely watch it. I don't recommend it for <laughs> third trimester pregnancy. You don't, I, I, you know, I think it's, it's a bit too much. But um, it's just this idea that once we start kind of doing intervention in what is a perfectly natural occurrence, 
uh, we're kind of messing with nature and then we just kind of, it's, it, it can snowball in just more and more intervention. So I tend to be like, you know, the least, the better. Oh, absolutely. No, I agree with that. But people are definitely, I am seeing an uptick in the community with, with uh, induction. And I'm just wondering sometimes if that is the actual birthing parents who just wants their child on a sp- specific date, or if it's, you know. I don't think so quite as much. Okay. I don't. The times that I might see that is if it's a second or third time parent and they're stressed about the organization of their of care for their first. But I am not getting the sense from, again, I don't, this is more again anecdotal, but from hearing my students, I'm not hearing them requesting it. If anything, I hear them a little anxious about, I'm set for an induction. What can I do? And then I'm going to give them things like, have you seen an acupuncturist? Have you gone to a chiropractor for Webster? Um, Have you explored having dates, the the fruit and evening primrose oil. There's actually data on dates starting at 36 weeks. I think it's like six six or seven dates a day can help like a prostaglandin soft. I mean, you're eating it, not (laughs) not putting it in the vagina, but can help um, soften and prepare the body. So there's, and I love data. So people can check that out. They can go to evidence-based birth and find that out. Um, There's some research about uh, evening primrose oil and how that can help prepare. So if I have a student that is anxious about an induction, I'm going to offer them ways if they don't if they don't want to go that medical route about some a little more do it yourself prep. Wow, wonderful. Um and and uh I would love if you could maybe share, you know, some for for those maybe who are listening who are expecting or who hope to expect soon any kind of misconception that we might have about birth that you would like to to debunk today. Oh, gosh. Um, I know there's a lot of them. but There's maybe. <laughs> a lot that just popped into my head. Um, okay, a couple things that popped in my head is that you are pregnant and not broken. And that birth mm. is our bodies. Do some people need support and intervention? Absolutely, yes. But that our bodies, it's not, a, it's not an illness when you're birthing. Our bodies are very smart. We can use support. We can use uh, medical support at times, but that you are not, you're not weak. You're incredibly strong and you're not, you're not sick for most part that you can have a say and you should have a say. And again, this goes back to ACOG that they say you do, you have the right as the birthing person to have things explained to you. And so you have a right to ask questions. You don't just have to say, oh, I go along with this. Actually happened in class last week. I had someone at 28 weeks and she had two cesareans and she was asking me, could she have a VBAC? I said, you have to talk to your care provider about that. That's nothing I can say. She goes, so should I just trust what my care provider says? And I said, well, that not necessarily. No. Like you can you can you can ask. You you have a right to ask questions. And if you're feeling like you're not getting support, you have a right to also change doctors. So you have a right to ask questions that you don't just have to say, doctor knows best, that you can have a conversation about 
guidelines, parameters, uh, options that, again, it's not just here's here's how it's going to go. So I think that's one myth to debunk. And the other one is that I have my students ask this all the time. Do I have to get an epidural? Like, is there a time limit or a time frame? I have to get an epidural. To my understanding, is you can have an epidural until that baby's crowning. So if someone's like, oh, it's too late, no, unless you're literally pushing that baby out of your vagina. I've had people that got all the way to 10 centimeters and then their baby was still a little bit high and they were just laboring down and they were exhausted. And yes, you have to sit through the procedure to get it, which may have its challenges, but you have every right to get it. So that is something I don't want you to feel like you're at six centimeters and them saying, oh, this is your window. No, if you want to say, thank you so much, I'm going to get it later. Or you might be like, I welcome that. Here's my back. Go ahead. So just not thinking that you have a small window to get it. Um, I think those are some of the big ones. Actually, one more that I'd like to say is that if you have an epidural, it doesn't mean that you have to push on your back. There's other positions. And I would invite you to have that conversation with your care provider about what positions you can push in. Because birthing on your back, our skeletons are not really um, ideal for that because the sacrum, that's a part of the spine and part of the pelvis that's fluid. And and I think of like a trap door, it kind of moves out of the way when, when we're birthing that's getting pushed into the pelvis and it loses space. So if you have an epidural, you don't have to be flat on your back or even inclined on your back or in any sort of um, supine position. You can go on your side. They can turn it down and prop you. So if you wanted to work with a squatting bar, there's options. So again, I guess this goes back to options. You have options. You have so many options. You just need to, to be on the same page with everyone and your team. So I think those are three good ones. Yeah, those are those are great, Deb. Thank you. And and I just love the way you repeat, you know, options. And I hope that, you know, our listeners who are maybe, you know, about to have a baby, just just know that you have options and and I love what you said. You are pregnant, not broken. It it is so true, right? It's you're you're not a patient, you're you're a client. You're yeah, exactly. you're there to do something that is a perfectly natural and to me, like, you know, birthing people are are just so powerful and so strong. So, um, so yeah. So um, as as we wrap up, I I would love for to go back and maybe ask a more personal question, if I may. Sure, of course. So you mentioned at the beginning that you have two children and your eldest is 11. So if you were to go back uh, 12 years, when you were expecting that first child, what wise words would you tell yourself knowing all that you know today? Oh my gosh. (laughs) 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 Uh, Slow it down, lady. Um, That's what I would say. (laughs) I would be like, get off the bike. I was, I still am. I have a Peloton downstairs and I love to ride outside, but I would have been get off the bike and get some body work done because I literally was in my spin clothes when my contractions started. I'm like, okay, if the contractions stop, I can still make the 10 o'clock class. So because, (laughs) because I was, and again, exercise is fantastic. But what I always say is exercise is great, but we also need to look at 
where the body is, what's going on at the body, what's going on at the pelvic floor, and what kind of work can we do to prepare the body? And I did not do that, even though I was doing this work. So I would have been say, get off the bike, let your pelvic floor relax, go get some body work and make sure everything's balanced. And had I done that, I think things would have been very different for that birth. Yeah, slow it down. That's what I would have said. To I, I, hope, I hope you were doing some prenatal yoga, though. Well, I was doing prenatal yoga. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. But I was a dancer. So I had, you know, I had some really tight pelvic floor muscles. So one thing that I think people think is, oh, all that flexibility, everything must be balanced. When someone is overly flexible, as my body is, they actually tend to have tighter pelvic floor muscles. And so my pelvic floor was very tight. My muscles in my pelvis were very tight. And that really caused a little bit of obstruction as my son was navigating his way down and out. So I would have reminded myself, slow it down. Slow it down. Wonderful. Well, this this has been wonderful, Deb. Any Any parting words that you would like to leave our listeners with today? So my parting words would be never compare yourself to anyone else because your journey is your journey and you don't need to match anyone else's expectations. Again, it goes back to that options, know who you are, know what you want, trust yourself. And that's not just in pregnancy and birth, that's in parenthood too. Trust yourself and trust the process. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Deb. This has been a delightful conversation and I really appreciate your your time and wisdom today. Thank you so much. Have you been searching for the owner's manual to your child or did you just misplace it? Are you tired of trying to figure out this whole parenting puzzle, not knowing what to do when it comes to tantrums, hitting or biting, sibling rivalry, potty training, proper sleep habits, or just plain wanting a better relationship with your child? You know, I've been at this for a while now and wanted to share my own parenting manual. It's called The Parenting School, and I've created it with you in mind. Give your child and yourself the gift of mindful parenting in just a few short weeks and discover all the tools you'll ever need to parent without losing your patience, giving in, or worrying that you're messing up. If you're yearning to be more patient and present with your child while finding balance in your own life, then you already know that you need effective parenting tools and ongoing support. You know you weren't meant to be raising children alone. And you probably already know that having the right parenting tools during moments of conflict is the key to staying grounded, responding with empathy, and strengthening your parent-child relationship. You've probably sensed that you'd be a more confident parent if you had a like-minded community supporting and encouraging you. Your skills have gotten you this far, but most days you still feel like you're making it up as you go. So here's what I've got for you. Reliable parenting principles that will allow you to finally set boundaries you can confidently uphold, communicate effectively with your child, declutter your home to enhance your child's independence, learning, and family harmony, and find more time to do the things you love. This is what the parenting school is all about. 
During this digital parenting course, you'll get weekly modules with lessons focused on key areas to get you where you want to be. These modules come packed full of video tutorials, journal prompts, actionable activities, expert interviews, and more, as well as weekly Lifeline group mentoring calls where I answer your questions personally, plus a virtual village with like-minded parents supporting each other during this deep-dive parenting intensive. I'll also include some extra special bonuses to keep you inspired and motivated along the way. So if this sounds too good to be true and you're ready to up-level your parenting skills as well as your family's well-being, head on over to The Parenting School at voilamontessori.com slash TPS dash enroll. That's TPS for The Parenting School dash enroll. To learn more about the, all the benefits of this fabulous interactive digital course I've created just for you. And by the way, I've also added the link in the show notes for you. Looking forward to supporting you and your family. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Art of Parenting podcast. And if you did, please share it with your loved ones and make sure to leave a review so it can get heard by many more. And remember, if you've got a question, let me know. I'm here for you. Till next time.